Ванной шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and I'm joined by Rusana Novakova and Margaret Budik. As you well know, the SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh. And listeners like yourselves who've joined the SRB Table of Ranks to give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you enjoy this podcast and want to support us, Please go to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog or to srbpodcast.org and find that Patreon button and join the table of ranks. So this week's episode, um, which I found really interesting, is uh, an interview I recorded with Isaac Scarborough for the Russian East European and Eurasian Studies Spring Interview Series, Openness, Acceleration, Restructuring the Soviet 1980s. This is a series of interviews I've been doing about the 1980s and trying to think about the collapse of the Soviet Union in general. Uh, one thing I need to say about this interview is I, I hope listeners will stick with it because it's fascinating, but I do have a warning that the audio quality is a bit iffy. Um, I tried to improve it as best I could, but sometimes these things happen. So I hope that you will forgive us. You know, we, we really try to provide the best audio quality we can, and sometimes, you know, things happen. So, all right, uh, Rusana, you want to read the bio for Isaac so we can just get straight into the interview. So you can go ahead. Thanks. Isaac Scarborough is lecturer in Russian studies at the Institute for History at Leiden University where he teaches on Russian and Eurasian economics and history. He received his PhD in international history from the LSE in 2018. Here's Isaac Scarborough. has looked, of course, at the collapse of the Soviet Union, but from a very different angle, and that is the perspective of Tajikistan. And I'm just curious, you know, how did you get drawn to this or interested in this topic? Well, it's a very long and laborious story, but the short version is I spent a long time living in Central Asia after uh, university. And I was living and working in the region, first in Turkmenistan and then later in Tajikistan. And at one point in 2012, I was reading an article in a local newspaper, Azipus, which is a Russian language newspaper in, which is published in Shambay. Uh, and there was an article by a local academic named Abdulhan in which he was describing the process of Tajik language sort of re-emergence re of the Tajik language as a social and a political topic during the dystopia. And one of the real key points that Lama Bazini made in his article was that what was going on in places like Dushanbe was very different than places in Moscow. And this sort of struck a chord because it aligned with a lot of greater processes that I had been observing in the literature and in my own experiences in Central Asia to the degree that things written about the USSR as a whole often seem to actually just be about Moscow or Leningrad or Kiev or a very few limited number of cities and primarily in European parts uh, of the USSR. They didn't seem to actually take into account the experiences and events in places like something. And increasingly, um, this was the case in the 1980s about which I had been reading. I had done a master's uh, in Eurasian 
studies in IV before 2012, so recently, uh, so I've been somewhat engaged with the literature, and I really couldn't see an overlap between what was being written in the literature and experiences about which I was learning from people and reading in some local literature in places in Canada. And so Mama Dazim's article really gave, I think, a push to investigate this more. Uh, and, and I should say thanks to him, I mean, he and I met him and we discussed the ideas and, and he actually was very instrumental in developing this into uh, a PhD project, which then I finished. relatively soon, and he was uh, kind enough to support it at the LSC. Uh, over time, the contours of the project developed in many ways that it didn't expect. It ended up being much more economic and less about linguistic and national development, let's say. But that was really the, the impetus. Something did not align. The way that life was didn't seem to be the way it was. This experience as a young researcher, and you stumble upon something like this, what, when you, if you could think back or remember, what really struck you about the fact that things in, say, Dushanbe were so different than what you were already familiar with? I think the dominating narrative that you see without the story about the late 80s and the SSR is that it's a period of uh, two things. One, national right? So that there are these large scale movements and that people are involved uh, in social society and that you have the harbors of teacher NGOs and people on the streets and thousands, if not tens of thousands, and that you have <clears throat> Glasnost, which is promoting a wide variety of new criticisms of the state. Uh, and so it's a really this giant upswelling in national organization and political freedom. And in a place like Central Asia, this is not at all what is described, right? What is described is confusion, economic collapse, loss of livelihoods, bread lines reappearing that hadn't been for decades, and a sense that there was a movement directed from outside telling people, okay, now go out and found some sort of NGO or found some sort of informal movement. But the idea of an upswelling of mobilization from the bottom just wasn't there. And so this contrast between a movement towards what we like to think of as the West of very positive political progress, um, and then the idea that life is just collapsing without any progress did not fit together at all. Well, why don't you give us some context? Like, how would you characterize life in Tajikistan on the eve of perestroika then? It depends if you're looking at the capital or you're looking at rural regions, of course. But the overwhelming aspect of life, I think, throughout Tajikistan circa 1985 is one of calm stability. Right? People have a very clear sense uh, that life tomorrow will be more or less like today, that their jobs will be guaranteed, that they have access to a basic modicum of consumer goods. But the real thing that I think makes this more than just uh, the Zastoy or stagnation that you hear about in Moscow uh, is that it was actually improving. Statistically, people's lives were improving uh, year on year, right? Their access to goods was improving, their access to higher education, various non-material goods, basic amenities and villages. These were all still improving, right? So these are improvements to the basic standard of living that had been made decades before in major urban areas in society, certainly in most towns and cities, if not villages of the European parts of the society. But they were still coming, they were still ongoing in the place like Tajikistan. So for Tajikistanis, there was a sense that life was getting better. 
At the same time, it's extremely safe, right? The murder rate is 30% lower than these in Russia at the time. I mean, Russia and USSR as a whole, the murder rate is quite low. We look at violent crime rates uh, across the board, right? Tajikistan is a very safe, comfortable place to live. Uh, and, and a place where life is not too bad and increasingly better in a way, right? So people have a sense of, of betterment uh, throughout their lives. Um, a great number of people in Tajikistan have, have recalled that the years immediately prior to 85 are in fact the best years that they remember. Uh, and these are people who went on to have very you know, successful careers in the post-Soviet sphere who uh, in, in recent years have been successful in the Tajikistan government or in NGOs who certainly had a higher material standard of living that they had and by the But they still remember that as a time that is the best event. Maybe perhaps we were young, maybe there's an element of nostalgia, but I don't think we should completely get it off. So this this actually is one of the things I it's interesting because it's like it's like two different stories. Well, I, I shouldn't say two different stories, but if you look at how we understand events in the center in Moscow, the unfolding of Petrostroika and then the eventual collapse of the system, um, you know, the story you're telling is is a divergence, a different type of story, a different perspective, a different, a different narrative. So I'm kind of curious. Like, what is the relationship then between Moscow and Dushanbe at this period? Um, you know, how much is life or politics in Tajikistan uh, connected or divorced from the politics in the center? I think it's very connected. Uh, no Republican Communist Party really was able to avoid the diktat of the Politburo and the Central Committee in Moscow. So. All policy is being dictated from the Communist Party to the government, right, the Council of Ministers and the various committees uh, that govern the USSR. And then this filters down, of course, to the Republican level, uh, both again through the Republican Communist Party and through the Republican government. Uh, Tajikistan, like all other republics, has no choice but to follow the policy. Uh, and generally speaking, their Supreme Soviet is more or less just passing resolutions based on the Supreme Soviet and council ministry resolutions in Moscow. Tajikistan has the particularly higher relationship with Moscow because of its subordinate economic position. So it is basically uh, run as a cotton monoculture for the majority of the Soviet period. The largest piece of its economy uh, is the production of raw cotton, and it does very little processing. So primarily, uh, it produces raw cotton, which are sent to other republics for processing and then developed into cloth and cloth-based goods. But this makes the Tajik Republic and its budget extremely dependent upon financial transfers from the center. So value is being provided to the center. The center knows that it's getting more value than it's providing to the Tajik Republic, so it makes up for it by sending financial transfers. Um, but this creates a very subordinate relationship because anytime anything needs to be built that's not been already over an accounted for in a previous plan or a previous budget, somebody has to go to Moscow and ask. So they are constantly asking. Ministers are in Moscow half of their time. The chairman of the Ghost Plan from Tajikistan lives in Moscow because he is just asking for money every day. They get the money, but it's a very subordinate. So they are always following whatever line comes out of Moscow. You can compare this in some ways actually to other republics which managed to eke out slightly more independence. Right? The Lithuanian party, the Lithuanian Republic, for example, was surprised that it was good at doing its own thing and 
sort of having a non-interference policy from Moscow, I think in part because it was less economically dependent upon the center and upon central transport. So in fact, Dushanbe, even though it's living in a way of very different life, right? Um, this is a different social life, which you said. It's a different perceptual life, right? People feel that life is very different. The social environment is very different because overwhelming politicians and and large swaths of the public, if not all of them, feel like life is improving, whereas in Moscow they don't. They're angry, they're frustrated, that life is not improving. And this helps give impetus to politicians at Kodavichel. But the policy is different. So, in, in fact, the, the plan is being fulfilled in both places. Some places they're just happier about that than others. Well, when, so when, when these reforms of, when Gorbachev uh, takes, takes over and he begins these reforms of, of under the blanket of perestroika, you know, a lot of us who've studied Russian history and of course other places, but just focusing on Ru the Russian empire and then the Soviet Union is that yes, uh, policy flows from the center, but how it's interpreted on the local level can sometimes be something else. So I'm curious as to, you know, how was perestroika understood in, Tajik, in Tajikistan? I think the distinction between how it was understood and how it was implemented. Because I think, and, and if I can go back to the first half of your question in a way and then answer the second half, uh, there's a general idea, and this is promoted by Gorbachev after 1991 and by a number of people who supported Gorbachev, that the reforms were badly implemented outside of Moscow, and therefore they didn't give the results that should have happened. Right? The results of, of Petersburg's economic reforms, according to its architects, were that it should have led to economic growth. It should also have led to uh, a boom in the production of consumer goods, and that overall it should have transformed uh, the Soviet economy in the way, say, that the Chinese economy was contemporaneously transformed. So that was, the argument is that, well, it would have worked, but it was blocked or it was badly implemented in places like Tajikistan specifically. And they don't mention Tajikistan, but they talk about the periphery, Siberia, or places far away where we don't know what's going on, where there are you know, so-called industrial interests or various local ministries. So that's the perception. Uh, or sorry, but that, that's the perception of implementation. Curiously, in practice, if you look at the archival data, in places like Tajikistan, the reforms are excruciatingly implemented to the last detail, right? The Republican government makes sure that uh, Soviet enterprises are following the new laws, that they are operating in the ways that the new laws dictate, right? That they are um, basically firing workers. I mean, it's, it's hard to fire in the Soviet system, but they're not hiring workers when workers leave, right? So they're creating the traditional labor market. They are lowering their production of certain goods, they're boosting their production of high profit goods, they're holding on the profit. These are things that were promoted in the law and in fact are implemented very closely. And I think in the periphery, actually, they're, they're implemented better than they are in the center. Because again, of this higher relationship, Moscow said there's a new law, if they will implement the new law, we're going to go down to the enterprise. It's the same story if you look, for example, at things like the drawing law that was passed in 86, which is extremely unpopular, but where the highest level of planned fulfillment in dry laws in places like Kazakhstan, where they just chopped down all of the apple trees because some of the apples were being used to make hard cider, right? Over fulfillment of the plan because of the subordinate relationship to market. So this is the question of actual implementation. But then there's the question of perception. In Moscow, the perception is these reforms are needed. Right? Whatever is going to happen, whatever hour they're implemented, we can argue about that, but they are needed. And something has to be done about the economy. It's at a cross point, right? A, 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 a crossroads. Sorry, it, it has to 
chain. And so we accept the fact that there might be some hiccups, there's some speed bumps, we'll get over them, but we accept the fact that we need to transform. In Tajikistan, there's no need. Why are we changing the economy? The system was still working, it was still giving improvements. So now we are essentially throwing out what was working, not so excitingly, and in place, we're getting enterprises who are no longer producing the goods they were producing. Workers are now unemployed, and we already had in Tajikistan, for example, a quite high unemployment rate. And there's even discussion, you know, unemployment, for example, in Moscow, maybe we shouldn't apply all of these things in Central Asia, maybe there should be some differentiation, but that's not that. Uh, and as a result, the perception is completely different. You know, this is this is there's a bunch of ironies working through this because on the one hand, you know, they're implementing these, as you say, to the letter. At the same time, there is, a, a, it sounds like wondering, like, why do we need them in the first place? And so, was there any kind of foot dragging? Is there any? Oh, absolutely. I mean, wait. oh, sorry. Uh, where, right. So, why local politicians, of course, uh, have no incentive to push through the laws when it comes to things like enterprise law. They don't because the law is passed in Moscow, so the regulations and the code is passed in Moscow, so the amount, say, of profits that an enterprise can hold on to and what they can do with that, has, there's no say at all in that. Uh, where you do see actual foot dragging has to do in areas where the Republican government has a vote. And this has to do with things like culture and language, uh, education. And even Boston, right? Because to some degree, that this is the realm of local newspapers and local media outlets. So even as 1987, 1988 roll along, and Prabh and Zvestian and central newspapers are running all sorts of criticisms of Soviet history in the 1930s, and of the current government, and of the current rule in the SSR, uh, the newspapers in Tajikistan, whether they're Komsomol in Tajikistan, which is the Komsomol newspaper in Tajiki, or Communist Tajikistan, which is the Russian language organ of the Communist Party, they're relatively quiet, right? They don't want to talk about Basmachini, right? The rebel movement in the 20s. They don't want to talk about collectivization in the 30s. They don't want to talk about cotton monoculture. Any of the real issues of the Soviet past are not dealt with, right? And major issues of the Soviet present are only run as reprints from Pravda or Investia correspondence based on the so sort of the first critical Glasnost style articles, in fact, have to do with things like the Roland Dam, which is being built and is flooding local villages as a result, or for example, the fact that some girls in villages were not finished school because they were married in early, which was also not so great according to certain ideology. Uh, and as a result, these were published by a Tajik author initially in Pravda and then we run in Communist Tajikistan. But they were not commissioned by the Communist Tajikistan editor because he answered to the Communist Party of Tajikistan. So there's an intransigence. And this intransigence is overcome by direct action from Moscow. So there are direct visits from people like Alexander the Yakovlev and Yorgi Razumov Street, who are aides to Gorbachev, to Dushanbe, and they publicly and privately harangue the Communist Party, they fire people, they basically push everybody around until they start accepting critical members in the central in the Communist Party of Tajikistan and start allowing more publications on, on critical topics. But when it comes to the law of language, which is passed in Tajikistan in 1989, uh, there's again sort of not much 
promotion of the idea, there's a little bit of mobilization. Then the Central Committee of the Communist Party in Moscow sends a copy of the Estonian law on language that had already been passed to the Communist Party and the government of Tajikistan. It says, what are you guys doing? Other people are passing language laws. Country should get involved. Uh, and still, the Communist Party of Tajikistan, under its, its chairman or, or general first secretary, I think they call them commission, first secretary, Kahor Makamov, uh, is still unsure if it's really necessary and still drags his, his feet on it and has to be called again personally by Garbatov and told to get his act together. Uh, so, yeah, they, where they can, they push back. But on economic reform, they have no power, right? So they, they really can't do much of that. It's interesting because it, it you know, to go back to the, the, the general narrative we have of this period, which is this rising crescendo of democratization, uh, political participation from below, Gorbachev's reforms unleash all of these pent up, you know, desires for freedom, whatever, however one wants to categorize it. Um, but the way you're describing it is is similar to other types of Soviet reform, where they literally have to send people out to knock heads to get things moving in in certain areas. Um, I, I find I find this these these kind of strange ironies to our general um, view really um, compelling. Well, it really is ironic and, and almost paradoxical, in fact, right? Because the leadership of the Tajik Communist Party under Mahala really they want to be loyal, right? They're loyal to a fault. They want to do everything that Gorbachev is asking. But they increasingly find that being loyal and following Gorbachev's dictates means undermining one their own power, but also the power of the union. So they have to be critical of the party. They they found or they, they allowed the founding of a discussion club under the Republican Komsomol, it's called Rubauru, which is face-to-face in Tajiki. And basically they are forced by the Komsomol activists to, they the leaders of the Republic. Makama, the chairman of the Council of Tajikistan, is who is the chairman of the Presidium of the Supreme Soviet, right? And others as well, but these are sort of three figures that are there in Tajikistan in the game. Um, they have to agree to go to these meetings where they're just harangued. People get up and tell them that they're idiots and don't know what's going on and how is the economy collapsing and what are they doing anything. It gets, I mean, as the years go by, they're basically threatening them, but they just stand there because they don't have any choice. But they didn't want this. They had no, they don't know why they're there, but God, Richard told them to do it. So here's what's not Talk about the, how this is experienced amongst regular people. You know, all of these changes, um, because, you know, from anecdotal evidence of of places like Leningrad or Moscow or other central places, we have a, a, a kind of a record of, you know, things were happening and 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 things were we, we kind of were thinking that something was going to happen, but there was a lot of electricity in the air and we didn't know where we're going. So what's the attitude of the experience on the ground in Tajikistan? Well, I think the sense that we don't know where we're going shared. But we do know that we're going somewhere not so great. That might be the difference. So I think that, that sort of this electricity that you get from you know, cities like Moscow or Leningrad is that we're going somewhere and it's kind of where we want to go. We hope, right? At least we can hope that it's where we want to go. In Dushanbe, or especially outside of Dushanbe, which is like regional cities or villages, uh, by 1989, 1990, they don't know where they're going and it's no one Uh And it's really that there's a sort of build up over. The first couple of years of reforms before the full effect kicks in, but by 1989 and certainly by 1990, uh, you do have a, an actual factual recession, right? You do have a significant cutbacks in the availability of consumer goods. 
And in places like Tajikistan, there's a significant limitation in the availability of industrial goods and capital goods that are needed to produce anything, because these are meant to be imported from other republics and they're not being imported because of general production laws. Um, so you really start to see a degradation in standards of living, which hadn't happened for decades. Right? Um, very clearly, people's lives had been improving, now very suddenly they're not. And that's, I think, very strange. Right? The number of unemployed people has gone up significantly. The number of jobs available has gone down. Enterprises are essentially not really hiring. So if you're unemployed, it used to be a good time to job that much difficulty uh, if you wanted. Now you can't. Uh, at the same time, the newspapers are now full from 1899, a very critical right, analysis of the activities of the Communist Party of Tajikistan and, and the government of Tajikistan, and you know, the sense that there is no longer uh, a sort of bastion of authority in their ideology. Everybody is open to criticism, too. Um, really just creates a breakdown in people's expectations of what's going to happen. I, I wonder, I wonder, I'm curious, you know, when you've talked to people, you know, while you're doing your research and after about their memories and how they reflect on that period, what are some of the, the answers you get? It really depends who you talk to in some ways. So there was an activist who worked for the organization Warastafiz. Warastafiz is a nationalist movement for natural uh, birth is what they called themselves. Uh, and they were founded in 89 and they became sort of the leading initially critical informal movement and then political party. They registered as a political party and were running candidates in the night February 1990 election. So the Tajik Supreme Soviet, although most of their candidates were not successful if you work. Um, so from then on, they're essentially an opposition party and they were campaigning throughout Tajikistan for changes to, to laws promoting Tajik culture and language, but also making Tajikistan uh, much more economically independent and so on. Uh, so I, I interviewed uh, a man who had been an activist in 1991, um, and he, he thought of that time was very with mixed <laughs> because on the one hand, it was an opportunity to promote values and, and cultural ideas that he felt very strongly about, right? He was a Tajik speaker, right? He felt that he had grown up in a, in a way that gave him equal opportunities as a Tajik speaker rather than as a Russian speaker that is in public and then partially occupied essentially by outsiders in places like Dushanbe. Dushanbe was only speaking for Tajik. I was very much a Russian speaking environment. And so this was giving a positive opportunity to people like him who wanted to make the Republic more Tajik and work. On the other hand, right, this ultimately, in his recollection, bleeds directly into the violence uh, that begins in 1990, right? There's a series of violent uh, riots in Shambay in February 1990, which are still very controversial to this day there. And then from early 1982 on, you have the Civil War, which in most people's recollections just gets flattened together. And there's no distinction between the collapse of the USSR and the Civil War. And so even for professional activists like this, these things can't be pulled apart. And so it's, it's, it remains very ambiguous. And I think for the vast majority of people who are recalling the thing, it's one long road into, it starts with economic downturn. It starts with the loss of, say, their livelihoods uh, or their access to consumer goods at it ends with it. But these things are not separated. So it's, it's very hard to pull them apart. But overwhelmingly, what you get is, for example, in 1989, deficits come back. Right? In 1990, lines come back. Right? So this sort of 
recollection of the specific economic hardships that they thought were gone. They grew up maybe with them, but then why are this is not the way that the, the Soviet project was supposed to be. You you mentioned this this activist who is working to you know make Tajikistan more Tajik. And you know, some scholars have argued that you know the role of nationalism and the the particularly in Soviet republics um, as as a major factor of the breakup or the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, what role, if any, did nationalism play in this process in Tajikistan? I think there's two senses of nationalism we probably want to break apart, uh, which are often used sort of interchangeably, but actually are different. One is the modern idea of the nation state as being a sovereign entity built on a titular ethnic nation. So in a way, um, let's say Ukraine is the state of the Ukrainians and the Ukrainians should be sovereign within their state, or they should be independent and ensure that these countries right to choose if they want to be independent. It's a very 20th century notion of nationhood and nationality as the basis for independence. Uh, there's also the sense of nationalism as conflict, whether open or latent, between different national or ethnic groups on a particular territory or relative privilege. Uh, and I think actually the latter sense, if you look at Russian language and certainly the late Soviet discourse, they're talking about that, right? Whereas the Western discourse overwhelmingly is talking about the nation's particular nationality. But these things often get blended together, which I think is a bit unhelpful. In the case of the USSR, you also have individual instances of both, right? So if you look at the Baltics, which have been well studied, there are very clearly nationalist movements in the Western sense, right? The, there is a widespread mobilization for independence on the basis of the particular nationality. The idea that, say, Latvia is for Latvians, or should at least be ruled by the majority of Latvian, right? Or, you know, Estonia and Lithuania are more or less of the same. Well, um, even Russia, for example, right? I mean, you have this movement, how marginal not are you, but in the late years of the USSR and post USSR, the Russia could be a Russian state, right? So that we re-establish the Russian basis for the Russian Federation, not the Federated basis for it, right? Uh, but in places like Central Asia, overwhelmingly, you see the latter idea. You don't see necessarily the idea that Tajikistan should be an independent nation simply on the basis of the fact that it is majority target, right? Or you don't necessarily see the linkage between the territory being dominated, say, by Turkmen, and therefore it shouldn't be independent. What you do see is, as in the case of Rastafans, that Tajikistan is a majority Tajik territory, and the people who adhere to Tajik linguistic, cultural, or ethnic identity should have at least the same rights as other Tajikistan. Right? So because they felt linguistically or culturally that their rights had been limited in relation to the Russian minority or the Russian speaking minority, uh, which often was not Russian, so it might have been Caucasian or Ukraine or anybody from outside Central Asia. Uh, this led them to believe that it historically was an opportunity to, and I think you'll see that across Central Asia, but it is not actually the same as the national movement you've seen, say, in the Western parts of the USSR. Communism ended, and, and this is part of another grand narrative we have about the collapse of communism in general, but you know, it ended in Eastern Europe and much of the former USSR peacefully. You know, you do have a war between Azerbaijan and Armenia. You have a civil war within Georgia. You have, of course, you have Chechnya, and you have the civil war in Tajikistan. Why did with this different path of why did the violent path um, 
result in Tajikistan? What were the what was the what were the causes and the underlying issues of the civil war? Well, I think it's time by being a little bit provocative and suggest that the peaceful end of the USSR was peaceful. And I think our, our narrative of peaceful collapses is wrong <laughs> because what we're observing today in Ukraine is at least partially a 30-year echo of the collapse, if not really just part of the collapse itself. It's a war over the conditions of the Soviet Union's collapse, right? There is now one state that emerged from that collapse and is not happy with the territory as it was divided and has gone to war with another state over the territory. It took them 30 years, but in practice, it's not that different than what Makarabas, right? It's before. It's on a much larger scale, unfortunately. The level of destruction is much greater, right? I mean, we're seeing the number of deaths very sadly in a month that we were seeing in six months to a year in conflicts of Tajikistan. But this is all part of the collapse of the USSR. We thought it was done, but it really wasn't. And it also shows us just how violent and unpeaceful it was. Um, and as you said, every time anybody says anything about the peaceful collapse of the USSR, they start listing these exceptions. Okay, so there's, there's this whole series, actually, of very ugly blood conflicts that occur, uh, but they are not primarily work one. And two, the major concern of, of Western powers is not low-scale fighting that kills tens and, or tens of thousands of people. It's the nuclear armaments. And the nuclear armaments are safe. That they could be controlled primarily by the United States and Russia. And these are safe powers, they're reliable, nobody is sending nukes at anybody. This is the Armageddon movement. And we can move on. That's the provocative answer. Of course, Tajikistan is different, right? I mean, qualitatively, there's a large scale civil war. It lasts for five years. Uh, 20 to 50,000 people die, depending on which estimates you believe, which, which still is no good number. Uh, and certainly 20 to 25,000 die in the first six months, which is extremely violent period between May and December 1992. Uh, there are a number of reasons why the violence was particularly bad in Tajikistan. I think there's the underlying fact that the Tajikistani economy was particularly integrated and particularly dependent upon the Soviet superstructure and proved particularly incapable of offering independently when it was pushed into doing so. Uh, if you look at the financial and economic ministries of the independent state in January, February, 1992, they literally do not know what is going on. They don't have a tax authority. They don't know how to correct tariffs. They don't have any access to budget funds. But when they go to agencies like the IMF to ask for emergency loans so that they can pay the people who need to found the tax authority, the IMF tells them, well, you need to cut costs and lower your tax burden, like Washington consensus, before we give you money. Um, and the idea that they had already cut all cut all costs because they have no costs, it doesn't work. Exactly. Like, so there's an incomplete mismatch between what is being told to them by the international financial institutions of America. So the economy is literally in zero. And I think that is different, right? If you look at even compared to other central Asian nations, that they have more access to funding and more access to resources independent of the territory of Tajikistan. Um, it's also the fact that Tajikistan's politicians, because of their paradoxical loyalty and therefore transit, right, this very paradoxical position that leads them to be extremely loyal to Moscow and therefore undermine their own power repeatedly, they become essentially powerless and 
unable to affect uh, change at all when they are called upon to do so in January 1982. Right? They are unable, right, the, the Rahman Nabir, who had been personally elected uh, president after a series of protests had pushed out Maqamah and his successor Aslanav in the fall of Nangwash, and Nabir cannot operate without Mossad. He is too much of a hierarchically determined, subservient politician who had existed his whole career in this relationship as the Mossad. And so this particular political culture combined with the economic situation where there were no resources and people had no disincentive not to join uh, violent protests that then became violent camps in civil war really set the state apart, quite unfortunately. You know, um, this story, narrative you're telling, really is, makes, you know, raises all sorts of reevaluations of this period and how we've come to understand it. And and thankfully, your research is part of a larger body of research that's going on right now, really reevaluating the 1980s and the collapse of the Soviet Union. So I'm just curious, you know, walking in to this project um, and thinking about that period and then walking out, what, how do you understand perestroika now? You know, what, what was it? Or if, when you teach it, how do you teach it? How do you explain it to students? Uh, I think what really was new for me was the economics of it. And this is something that now for me is front and center. When I went into the study of the Soviet 1980s, I went at it with the same sort of linguistic, cultural, political bent that right, often is. And so I thought, okay, I'll look at it from what should be a different series of events in Central Asia, where the outcomes are different, you know, uh, that the political parties are different and more limited, and there's not this mass mobilization. But right, it is, let's say, a cultural, political series of processes, right? Economics don't really matter. The economic situation is bad and more deteriorated, et cetera. Uh, coming out, what is the most important part of the historic is actually, in fact, what it started out as, which is an economic reform program. That is how Pedestorica was intended, was to reform the Soviet economy. Gorbachev did not set out in 85 or 86 to reform the Soviet political structure. He didn't set out to give freedom of speech to everybody. He didn't set out to create independent critical political parties. These are all steps that he added in later in 87, 88, 89 to create political support for his economic program, which kept running into blocks. Or, depending on how you interpret it, and I would say, kept leading to negative consequences, which he interpreted as blocks but he needed increasing support, right? So he kept doubling down. He said, all right, the initial reforms are not getting the results I want. I will sideline the Central Committee of Congress. Well, that's still not working. I'll create the Congress of Chief Deputies. Okay, well, everybody should have freedom of speech to criticize these idiot communists because they won't support So really, if you go back and start from, from the beginning as a true historian, it's an economic group. And if you focus on that, then you see really what the reforms do in the economic system. And fundamentally, they do, right? So by 8990, there's a, a deputy, I think, in late 1990 at the Tajik Supreme Soviet, who gets up at one point and says, gentlemen, I no longer know where are we living. Is this the USSR or is it a foreign country? And he's very honest about it uh, because the economic situation is just not what it was five years before. And to people like him who have been elected in '86, in, in the previous elections to the Supreme Court, he has no idea. It no longer was his home. And finally, you know, what are some of the main legacies of the end of this system in Tajikistan? What do, what do you what can can you pick out in terms of that the reverberations? 
It is still basically an ongoing process in Tajikistan anyway. And this is because the civil war has sort of held back a lot of the processes that were fully enacted in the 1990s uh, and early 2000s elsewhere in the former USSR. Um, and I mean this in two senses. One, politically, right? So Pedestroika in some ways throughout the USSR, whether or not people initially are in favor of it or not, create a conflict between those in favor of change and those right? This is something we see playing out throughout the 1990s and into the current moment, right? It's an ongoing debate in Russia as to you know, why, say, those individuals advocating a more Soviet style of rule are now in power and not in power 20 years ago. Why are the so-called civil king, right? I mean, why these people are, again, at the peak of political power? But these are the same people who, at the late years of the USSR, were opposed to change. They didn't see them for change. They were the ones who wanted uh, a strong state and didn't want market systems because market systems are the one point. So they seem, right? So you have a back-and-forth process, but the process had sort of completed itself in one direction and then gone back the other direction in Russia. In Tajikistan, that conflict opens up and disappears. Right? So the two sides of the civil war are essentially ideologically those like Kristofez, let's say, and later on the party of Islamic rebirth and the Democratic Party of Tajikistan and other political parties who are advocating for change and movement and sort of a rejection of the Soviet norm, such as war, such as in uh, and those like Rahmul Nabiyev and his supporters in Fatah of the Front from the South, who were advocating strong government, limited markets, and really more or less continuity of Soviet authority. Uh, the Civil War, although nominally won by Rahmul and his supporters, left that conflict in a way unresolved because at the end of the Civil War in 1997, the peace treaty allowed 30% of government posts to be held by opposition members. And this included in the military, in the security services, and in the foreign ministry. So the government essentially was split still. And this process of conflict continued at least until 2012, 2013, when more or less the last vestiges of the opposition were schooled out of the government in various ways. 2014. It depends who you think of this as part of the opposition or not. It's a controversial question. But um, the, the conflict continued, right? It wasn't over. It sort of drug itself out because of the war. At the same time, the economic transition was put on hold, right? So privatization starts, say, from 1991 into 1992. Then it stops because of the Civil War, because nobody's privatizing anything. Money. Uh, they're just burning things from them. And then it restarts in the late 90s. But in fact, it's 100% restarted. Things that had been sold in 91 were renationalized and resold. They would then be renationalized and resold again, like this has happened three or four times in, in relation to certain former enterprises. Uh, what is allowed to be nationalized and is not allowed to be nationalized is an ongoing debate in on today. Um, and so I think, in a way, what, what the Civil War did was simply stretch out the collapse of the US economy. Um, and very interestingly, if you talk to people in Dushanbe, it's not uncommon to hear that the USSR collapsed in 1997, or maybe later, or maybe a couple of years ago, because the idea of the Soviet collapse did not distinct from everything that just keeps changing. Right? It doesn't stop. Right? Uh, there is no neat 1991, December 25th, where you can say, okay, the Soviet flag went down, the Soviet flag went up, everybody's done, we have a nice independent state and move on. It, this is not how history is experienced, and certainly not when that history leads directly into art. Interesting. Interesting. So I would imagine then given this kind of long timeline you have of, you know, collapse, 
what some of the reverberations, I mean, somebody in the chat mentioned, of course, the Georgian war in 2008, a lot of the, the, the questions that are being dealt with now, you, you see kind of like, well, you know, Tajikistan has been kind of doing this for a while now. Um, so it, it sounds like that, that, that gives you a very interesting perspective on the present as well. Well, I like to think that we can learn from the periphery about central processes as well. I mean, one of the, the central points that I like to make to students on the energy teaching um, is that the USSR is so much bigger than Moscow, right? It's an enormous country. We're talking nearly 300 million people, right? the largest country that existed at the time, which are one of the largest countries ever to exist in the world in terms of geography, in terms of expanse. And what is happening across the USSR has interdependence. And so we can learn a great deal about Soviet society from looking at those events. It shouldn't be we say, okay, here's the most important thing that's happening because it's in Moscow, it's not a country, right? The Communist Party is sitting there. Uh, and then, okay, let's do a little bit of you know, Central Asian token. In fact, what's going on in Central Asian physics actually like, really matters because it shows things that will have a liberation as well across the exercise. Um, so absolutely, I think what we are observing in the last decade in Russia's relations with many of its neighbors is in fact right, an ongoing reverberation or aftershock, if not simply an end process of the collapse that hadn't been for himself. That was Isaac Scarborough. Isaac Scarborough is lecturer in Russian studies at the Institute for History at Leiden University, where he teaches on Russian and Eurasian economics and history. He received his PhD in international history from the LSE in 2018. Well, um, I don't know what you two thought of this interview, and, and we'll, I'll certainly share my thoughts in a bit, but I, I found it just fascinating from the fact that I knew nothing about the experience of perestroika and the collapse of the Soviet Union in Tajikistan. And I think as Isaac points out really early is, you know, we have a tendency to think about these things uh, we know in terms of Moscow or St. Petersburg or other large cities in the core of the Soviet Union and less about the periphery. So uh, what are some thoughts that you you both had? Yeah, I also found this angle from the periphery absolutely fascinating. Um, as you just mentioned, we're not only taught to think, but like really when even when you go to like say grad school, you usually read articles and books that talk mostly about Russia and Moscow and maybe Leningrad um, in particular. So yeah, it like really put, it got me to think about, you know, the different uh, concerns that the former Soviet republics had at the time of perestroika, right? Um, I started to wonder whether Tajiks, um, you know, the Tajik intelligentsia or the Tajik party leaders were so concerned with freedom of speech or political liberties or, you know, their vision of the Lenin word, kind of like going back to the true Lenin word as, you know, a lot of people were in Moscow. And it doesn't seem like they were, while economic concerns were, you know, dominant for them. And yeah, it must have really... Um, it must have, you know, th these differences must have really 
influenced the way that this whole decade was was perceived and the kind of consequences it had for the country as a whole and for people. Yeah, I thought he made some really salient points about how this collapse was not peaceful and is continuing to be negotiated, which seems today looking at it ever more true. I mean, you have like this commonwealth of independent states that exists now, but the entirety of the post-Soviet economic, social, military, geopolitical security rests on the idea that Russia doesn't overstep its boundaries. So the solidity of this union is clearly crumbling <laughs> and resentment against Russia grows. And as it does so, countries and what we know is the periphery has have to start choosing sides. So like Scarborough brings this up in the question of the changing the language or changing the alphabet, how former Soviet countries banded together against what they saw as their respective colonizer, which was Russia. And so now we're seeing this too, like happening again in the Ukraine crisis. But like with a country like Tajikistan, where the expectations are less clear, and they're even kind of further <laughs> in the periphery, as opposed to like Estonia or Belarus, for example, the support is a lot more, or the support that Russia gives, I mean, is like a lot more important. Like the peripheral countries, they don't have the same kind of support networks in the same way, or like, they don't have like, who who else do they have besides Big Brother Russia? China, United States, Europe, Middle Eastern countries. And so it's like, go with the devil you know. Like, at least that's what I was hearing a lot when I was in Kazakhstan is like, they have options like China or the United States who are both vying for uh, dominance, uh, soft power in the area. And yet they know that 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 in order to take that option, they're going to have to make sacrifices that they might not want to make. And there isn't that cultural, historical rapport in the same way that they have with Russia. So I guess like my real takeaway is that in terms of choices, Tajikistan, like any country, has limitations. And the way that the Soviet Union collapsed highlighted this lack of agency, so to speak, or like just kind of submission to whatever like Big Brother wants. Yeah, I I was, um, you know, first off, I, I love these reevaluations of, of very large events or historical processes that provide us with a, a different narrative that really sheds light on the limitations of our previous narrative. And, and one of which that he that Isaac pointed to is we have a tendency to think of, you know, perestroika, but the collapse of the Soviet Union itself as a, um, a rising crescendo of democratization, right? You know, essentially it's a, it's a, it's a reaffirmation of the, you know, the, the end of history thesis, right? That, that liberal democracy will triumph. Um, and the, the experience of Tajikistan kind of turns a lot of that on its head, right? The concerns there are completely different. The conditions in which perestroika are um, experienced are different. And I would, I would, I would imagine, and I, and I think this is worth considering, that the experience of Tajiks is more similar to the experience of, you know, the average person in the Soviet Union than it is the experience in Moscow is to the average Soviet, average citizen in the Soviet Union. I think, I think I have a, my suspicion is, or 
at least one of my takeaways, is that the Tajik experience is more the norm <laughs> than not. Um, along that... What do it, you mean by that? What I mean by that is that, you know, we hear this a lot about Moscow uh, and St. Petersburg, too, but in also other cities, um, you know, larger cities. And that is, it's, it's, they're different. Moscow is different than the, the life in the rest of the country. You know, it's far wealthier. It has a critical mask of mass of, you know, uh, a middle class Soviet or post-Soviet. Uh, it has a critical mass of intellectual, educated, you know, scientific, et cetera, types. So it's kind of a, it's kind of an island, a very, very powerful island that, that, that acts as a magnet that sucks everything, all the resources into the center. And therefore, when you have these political economic upheavals, their experience far different than they are elsewhere. And I think you can say that about pretty much most countries, right? <laughs> you know, the experience of, say, New Yorkers is far different than the experience of Pittsburghers, let's say, let alone in rural areas. So I think it, 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 the Tajik experience is instructive. The other thing that's really striking is the challenge to the idea, which is commonly embraced, that the collapse of communism was peaceful. Um, and as he pointed out repeatedly, you know, yeah, it's peaceful, but then people start mentioning all these caveats, right? Georgia, Nagorno-Karabakh, Moldova, uh, Tajikistan, uh, Chechnya, etc. And then I think, and this goes to the, the larger, more of a question, is, you know, what we're seeing in Ukraine right now is this the continual collapse or reorientation of, of Soviet, post-Soviet space or f the former Soviet space? I, it seems like, yes, I, it was, that's such an, I was, that's such a interesting and compelling way to perceive what's happening in Ukraine as this renegotiation of the collapse of the Soviet Union. And, and that's, I'm definitely going to now look at the situation with new glasses on, you know, so to speak, with in terms of uh, <laughs> what this actually means, what's being said here and what's being communicated between Russia and Ukraine. That doesn't have to do with the United States and where the United States fits into the renegotiation, too. But I guess that's a separate question. Absolutely. Uh, I definitely agree with uh, with you, Sean and Margaret. Uh, it's no surprise that, you know, invocations of socialism abound <laughs> in this war conflict. And one might ask, like, why? What does it have to do with socialism or progressive politics or any of the things like that we associate with the idea of socialism, right? But I think if we if we think about how regular people perceived like what socialism was for a normal Soviet citizen, as Sean, you mentioned earlier, right? It wasn't really about those big ideas. It was about, you know, economic security. It was about, um, free child care and free medical care for you and your family. 
uh, all those kind of like more maybe mundane, but also very important and foundational things. Not to mention how he brought up how uh, like the environmental degradation that was a result of the Soviet Union, like the state, like ruining their with the cotton economy or whatever what how does it like that something with the cotton just like killed the environment maybe this this will be helpful with, with what you're saying um that's the other thing that uh, you know i've been kind of going through the relationship between the soviet union and and its periphery as a colonial relationship and you know this also goes back can be back to the war in ukraine it's it's about decolonization too right ukraine is trying to decolonize itself one could argue um and and one of the things that that of course i didn't know because i don't know much about central asia but he was very clear isaac was very clear on the the sheer economic colonial relationship between the center and Tajikistan in the sense that it was just the, the role of Tajikistan in the Soviet system was, was raw uh, material extraction, right? Cotton. And, and they, Tajikistan was fully dependent upon the center in this colonial relation, economic relationship. And it's interesting, you know, the little I know about post-Soviet Tajikistan is that its economy is still very much dependent upon Russia, but now Tajik migrants sending remittances back. I mean, both Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan are in this situation where, if I remember correctly, like a quarter of the GDP comes from remittances from migrant labor. Um, so, you know, there still is a, I mean, as you, I think you pointed out in the beginning, Margaret, there still is a colonial relationship. Um, and the question is, is how has that changed since the Soviet times? Um, but I, I found that also, a, a, it, it was, it was educational for me because um, to, to learn more about the Soviet Union as a colonial empire. And also to bring about like empathy to these countries that just as they're getting they're they're assimilating into the new system and finding a balance that works, it's ripped away and they have no agency in that decision. Yeah, and it's interesting to think comparatively um about the the about the colonial relationship between Russia and the rest of the republics. I think at the beginning, Isaac mentions the difference between Tajikistan and Lithuania and how, you know, their degree of dependence was very different. And um, yeah, their degree of dependence from the center was different. And how, you know, at the time of collapse, it really manifested itself when Tajikistan, you know, was powerless at the time of the dissolution, you know, it got all the power, kind of, I don't know if it wanted or not wanted, but it got the power, <laughs> but uh, couldn't do anything with its political or economic independence. I mean, truly, it wasn't like really independence because, as you, Sean just mentioned, they're still like relying on Russia to a great degree. 
And here, like Lithuania or like other Baltic states are very different. And I mean, we could also think about it like long term, like how the countries were like, what were the grounds on which the countries entered the union? <laughs> and like, how did, uh, and like what, what, what they had at the outcome, right? Because I mean, the Baltic states, I mean, different, were very different were in a very different position from the beginning. And so were the Central Asian states too, their boundaries, the borders that are continue to be a problem, the way that Russia had established the borders. Well, that that's the other that's the other issue is the role of nationalism, right? Because there is a there is an argument to be made that, you know, one of the the reasons for the dissolution of the USSR is the, you know, flourishing of peripheral and local nationalisms. Now, and here's a big difference between, say, the Baltics and Central Asian states, for sure, because in, in the Baltics, you had nationalist movements and very national oriented once perestroika allowed, opened up the, the politics. Um, and of course, the way they were going to what you said, Rusano, the way they were incorporated into the Soviet Union in 1939 as part of the, you know, Hitler-Stalin pact um, is a totally different conditions <laughs> uh, in which Tajikistan, which, which I, my impression was from Isaac, that nationalism uh, in Tajikistan was there in a soft way, in a cultural way but not necessarily in a, it's not the same as nationalism you would find in the Baltics or in Ukraine or even in the South Caucasus. Um, it's, it's a different type of, of you know, national formation that I, I don't know if either of you can speak to this. I don't know the depths of, one of the questions I have for Central Asia is, it seems to me that there still is kind of a lack of nationalism there's certainly ethnicity is a problem because it's a multi-ethnic place and there's strife and conflict but in terms of nationalism i i don't know if it's a very strong it has a strong resonance or not i don't know about tajikistan i tajikistan is clan culture as well right is there a strong kazakh nationalism now there now is now there is and before there was too they had this organization called kazakh orda i think uh, don't take my word for it, listeners, but there there was this, they were called, considered by the government a terrorist organization, but that was a nationalist organization. But the, not in terms from the, in terms of the, how much does the state actually employ nationalist? Now more so, I mean, they changed the alphabet and such away from Cyrillic. Uh, and so there's definite measures to, and they made Russian only the the language of business, so to speak, and Kazakh is like now supposed to be the predominant language that like you learn in school, and that's what your education is supposed to be conducted and stuff like this. But um, Tajikistan, I don't know. I wonder if clan culture has anything to do with like the lack of kind of a core in like values, or not even in values, I guess, in in nationalistic identity. Because you you don't like centralize yourself into one people. I don't know. Just to to wrap things up, it does speak. I I think, and and this is what's nice about interviews like this, in my opinion, is 
I'm left with more questions about, you know, that region, um, Tajikistan in particular, uh, that I think are really useful in reevaluating or rethinking my own accepted narratives. So, uh, yeah. Any, any lasting, any last comments or thoughts? I just, I keep thinking as Russia continues to change, I, I'm, I mean, like you said, more questions than answers, I guess. Another question is, as Russia continues to, to change its its foreign policy efforts, I wonder how how this post-Soviet colonial relationship plays out. You know, what are people reevaluating what their options are or states reevaluating what their options are and who are the alternatives that they can turn to? But that's one of the things that I did notice while in Kyrgyzstan, that it seems like there are all these other powers that are trying to enter the field, you know, Turkey with uh, Islam and then China with the Silk Road, you know, building all that infrastructure and everything. And I wonder how long this memory of a collective history of a shared past will be enough for people to stay committed to Russia, right? And uh, maybe at some point it's not going to be enough and other interests will prevail. Well, thank you very much for your comments. I mean, again, this is, like I said, it, it, it opens up a whole bunch of things worth thinking about. Um, well, I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and I'm joined by Rusana Novikova and Margaret Budik. Uh, the SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh. And of course, listeners like you. If you'd like to, um, you know, if you want to help out spread the word about the podcast, please take a moment to share it on social media, tell all your friends and family, uh, drop us a line on Facebook or Twitter or at srbpodcast.org. Uh, let us know what you think of these interviews. And um, again, I'm going to make another appeal. If listeners want to, they can. you can submit an audio testimonial or uh, ask us some questions that we can play on the podcast. We'd, we'd like to have a bit of a segment answering questions. If you want to ask us something, and it could be anything, um, record something short. It's easy to do. You can just do it on your smartphone. And you can email it to info at srbpodcast.org. That's info at srbpodcast.org. And as always... If you'd like to support the podcast, we'd love to have your money. You know, let's just be blunt about it. We want your money um, because the podcast, SRB Podcast, is a nonprofit educational endeavor, and it relies on the support of people, listeners like yourselves to uh, chip in every month to, uh, you know, allow us to do some other things and to let us know that you value this, this podcast as a service. So, you know, please help it, us keep it free and uh, free of advertisements. So please go to uh, srbpodcast.org and uh, click on that Patreon button or to patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog. So until next time, bye.
Sensación. 